Welcome to the New Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. My guest on this episode of the podcast is Bianca Lopez, who's a technologist, entrepreneur, and an expert in the topic of digital identity. Digital ID is how we represent ourselves online and also also how we recognize the people or even the things that we're dealing with online. But this year, with the coronavirus pandemic, has shown us all around the world how important the systems are. Because without a solid digital ID system, societies and economies are finding it very hard to recover from the pandemic. And as you'll hear Bianca describe in the podcast, if we don't fix these ID systems, we're going to have recurrent crises, uh, particularly since much of our interaction and economic activity now takes place online. Thank you for going to have a chat. Tell me how you got into the area of digital ID. All right. So I kind of fell backwards into it. I wouldn't say that I went to university and or woke up one day or was a little kid and said, I want to be in digital identity or identity in general. I didn't really even know it was a field, to be honest, perhaps uh, part of my ignorance. But even as a trader, I worked at RBC for a few years and I didn't even really think of anything like onboarding or authentication as identity until I started working at a biometric company because of one of my clients actually at HSBC. He was working in real estate and uh, he's a massive real estate investor and I was doing real estate uh, financing. And he said to me, he's like, you belong in somewhere you're going to question the status quo in this industry. You kind of need somebody that does that. At the time, the company was working and identity. So they were doing physical access control when I came into identity from that perspective. And I think I fell in love with identity. I, I That is a very distinct moment for me, not, not the getting into the industry, the realizing I was in love with it. And I think I realized it really mattered when I realized it was really about people. It was really about giving power to people and enabling a more, I wouldn't call it transparent, but a more equity equitable like sort of footprint for people to mm-hmm. navigate not only the physical world at the time that I was working in but also the digital world so that's kind of when when I got into it <laughs> and, and why is there such a rapidly increasing interest in the topic of digital ID I think it's overdue um, if you ask me uh, I think there's not enough people interested in it but I think the reason for this sudden or heightened interest is because we realize it's so foundational to our society. Um, if, if you really think about identities, how we recognize people and things, it's how we know who we're dealing with. And the human brain is naturally wired to want to identify things so it can decide it can either heighten your amygdala and decide it's going to go into fire flight mode and know, hey, this is an enemy. I need to act or I need to protect myself or this is an opportunity. So I think that has been heightened, obviously, with things like COVID or just the fact that we've gone digital. So the complexity in which you have to deal with identifying things in people has increased. And I think the consequences have also increased. People have realized that they can no longer ignore this topic. So how, how big is it, how big a, a leap is it for the human brain going going from a, a small community of people or the type of communities we've lived in for most of human existence to suddenly being connected to you know, eight or nine billion people uh, via the internet? What, is, what has that done to our 
the way we think and operate. Oh my goodness. I think it has done some great things and I think it has done some horrible things. Um, I'll, I'll touch on both. I think we weren't naturally wired to be connected to that many people. There's, there's not enough hours in the day um, for you to physically be connected. And I think we've seen some of the bad results of that. I have a teenage stepdaughter and I see some of the effects on her feeling like she needs to be connected to that many people and feeling like now her audience or her approval or the, the outside world is much bigger than yeah. perhaps it was when I was in school or when my mom was in school. Um, on the other side that I think it's good is that it allows us to break barriers. It has allowed true innovation and collaboration in a way that hadn't happened before. I likely wouldn't have met you if it wasn't for the digital footprint that we all have been building um, over the years. How many digital IDs do we have? Is, is it the case that we should imagine we have a, you know, we, we'd probably like to think of ourselves as a single person, uh, as human yeah. beings, but on the internet, we have lots of identities. So is that a challenge uh, for us to cope with the idea that we may not be a single person, we may have different identities? I think it's a challenge even on the non-digital world. I think we, we assume various different roles um, in, our, in our lives, right? We take um, attributes that perhaps are contextual, like you can be a friend to somebody, you can no longer be a friend, you can be married to somebody, you can no longer be married. That's nonetheless a way of identifying you, of, yep. of putting you in a, in a category of a role or a obligation. So I think that that's hard for people to manage um, on the physical world and on their day-to-day -day world is even harder on the digital front. And I think the, obviously we all heard about the ridiculousness of the fact that we've perpetuated who we are and created more attributes to associate with ourselves. That comes at a degree of risk um, of obviously fraud and obviously somebody pretending to be you or you even not being able to keep up with, like I think there was a number published by uh, the ID for the world um, in OWI as well recently that is like the average person has over 35 to 40 digital uh, identities, as if yeah. you want to call it, yeah. uh, logins, usernames. And I think that that represents not long, it's a management issue is we have had to resort to things like password saves or using password or one, two, three, four, four as the common thing. I think that's just a, a proof that the technology has not evolved to the extent that I think it needs to for people to be able to be themselves and protect and, and have the digital version of themselves be protected or shown in a way that they want seamlessly. That's yet to happen. Mm. So what, what, what do you think from a purely technological point of view, what is the kind of ideal form of digital identity? I just wondered whether the, the invention of mobile phones or other devices have kind of given us the tool that we might use to you know very easily identify ourselves if we wanted to go down that route and maybe a combination I think that, of, that of, definitely of, existed yeah. like if I think if you go back to so I get I get where you're asking me because I wanted to know if you were asking me if you want to talk about like federated identity or self-sovereign identity I think yeah, I do want to ask you about those things as well but I wanted to start okay. by kind of seeing if there's a if there's an ideal if there's a you know in your mind if whether there is such a thing or whether it's just something that it depends on the context. I, I do. I, I think that, that I come from the world of biometrics uh, first and there is one particular biometric other than your DNA that I actually think it's under understood in the world. 
Um, your fingerprint actually is one of the most, uh, it's one of the oldest forms of biometric that has been captured and studied. And more, most importantly, it has a standard. NIST has a standard for how you capture the minutia of, of somebody's fingerprint. And today, mobile phones and actually the quality of a camera has allowed us to do things like take a photo, which is not really a photo. It's more of like an MRI scan that yes. you see on readers because your fingerprint goes beyond what humans would think your fingerprint is. Humans would point at their finger and be like, well, what about people that have worn off their fingerprints? That, that such thing doesn't exist. Your fingerprint is actually born in your belly and it, when you're in my mom, your mom's belly. And even if you have identical twins, uh, they will have different fingerprint configurations. So it's a collection of points that can be turned into an algorithm that is actually who you are. Um, and that goes with you until you die. Different than your face, as an example, your face has points, but they change over time because you age over time. And the algorithm, which is why some algorithms are not sophisticated enough today, and why you have so many different facial recognition systems, because there's no pattern. There's no, there's no standardization on how you take the biometric imprint of a person. So if I go back to the individual, I would say that your identity starts with something that is intrinsically yours and only yours, that is not given to you because most of the things that you hear people debating about digital identity are, are, are attributes, are things that might be yours. Like I said, you might be a doctor, you might be a spouse, you might be a parent, you might have access to somebody's account. Those things are not who you are. They're an attribute yep. given to you or that you self-attributed. Yeah, yeah. So, do, so does that, you, you mean we sometimes confuse the attribute with ourselves somehow. Yeah, with identity. And to me, identity, identity is yeah. who I am. Yeah. And who I am should be defined by me on a psychological, on a taste, on a sexual orientation basis, I shouldn't be told. So yeah. when I hear a lot of the discussions going around the table about what is the system to manage this, we're still really stuck on authentication without yeah. solving the problem of identification. And I think that's where you've seen a lot of the cracks in, I've been privileged to work with a few governments and you see a lot of the cracks in their infrastructure because they're thinking kind of like what banks did to digital. They're like, oh, look, I have an app, but you're not really digitally native. Um, yeah. You're not solving at the core of the data issue. So then, I'm, then you're gonna get to issues like anonymity or witness protection, or am I, if I have something that's mine, like my face, should that be open and displayed for anybody as a form of authentication? And then you get into privacy issues and, yeah. and sort of data storage issues as well. Yeah. So, so what, you know, given those, uh, those complexities, um, you know, what are the pros and cons of the different types of digital ID systems, whether they're, you know, a national system trying to capture everybody in a particular country or yeah. you know, federated systems or decentralized blockchain-based uh, systems? It's a great question. And I think it's one that society has to take accountability to have that discussion because unfortunately I still see a bit of a pissing context on uh, my country versus yeah. your country, my system versus your system. And I think an example of that is the US where you don't have, you see Trump, uh, you see Trumponomics talking of things like, let's cut WeChat um, because we want to protect data and for civilian reasons. And there's no, at a base level, there's no data 
there's no data regulation that is across all the states yeah. that is common in the states of the United States. Yeah. So if you don't have data protection issue, how are you even going to get to the issue of talking about what identity data you yeah. are storing or not storing? When I look at a self-sovereign model, there is a part of it that I buy into, which is we have evolved enough and technologies like biometric capture that somebody should be able to identify themselves and, and be an owner of their identity. But just like we were an owner of a piece of paper, we didn't really manage that really well. We needed other governments to manage that and the sort of acceptance of that um, identification, if it's not, if we don't have a standard, it's, it's really not worth a lot, which is why I think you've seen a lot of the self-sovereign identity models or the blockchain models operate almost as a parallel system. I think I, there's some aspects of blockchain models on anonymity that I believe are, are valid because if I look at witness protection or if I look at some other aspects of identity that frankly, like you don't have the right to know. I think identity at a core fundamental level is what am I giving to you and what am I getting in return? Just like a human relationship. Mm. Um, and I think that's the foundation in which we have to look at. When you look at India cracking as an example, one of the largest biometric systems in the world, but the foundation of the technology is it's flawed and not too, totally connected. It started as a constitutional mandate and it was for it was it was mandated for services and then they realized oh wait a minute we don't have a privacy act our privacy act is back up to 2000s and if we don't think about these things as interconnected you're going to get to the same problem you see there or the same problem you see in the uk the uk to me is another prime example legislations like faster payments or PICS in brazil are great for payments but they're yeah. going to be completely flawed if you're again not solve the infrastructural issue of identity, you're going to be talking about identity as attributes. You're going to be talking about identity as my email address or my bank account or my phone number. So, so I think that there's, there has to be sort of a, a bottoms up, top down approach to yeah. a certain extent of we're, we're still talking about people. Whether you want your identity to be known online or not, there's still, there's still the line that you should be able to connect that attribute if it was for something like a crime back to a human being. We, we, we have not multiplied the number of beings. We have multiplied the number of things that we connect to that being. So the system has been thought about it from a place of authentication often, not from a place of access. And it has also been thought about not contextually. So a lot of these systems that you see governments implementing are linear. And what do I mean by that is once I'm identifying this system, this is my identity and I shall use this identity for everything. Yeah. We all know, and especially girls, that one size does not fit all, right? So it's like, it's it's flawed at its inception. It, and I don't know if I covered what you wanted to. Yeah, no, I, I'm just wondering if there's a, there's a, I understand from your chat with Tony, you spent a lot of time in different countries looking at different approaches to this problem. Yeah. And I'm just wondering what, you know, what, what you'd um, concluded from those. Yeah, I think, the common thread, I think the common thread is a few is one, the identification process and what is used for identification has a long way to go. You see countries like China that have used a pretty much standard uh, facial recognition run by companies that are totally subsidized by governments. But um, so you have a state of control over identification. So to me, that's a minor innovation on what we've had in other countries for years. Yeah. Because countries, governments used to have to find out who you are to 
make sure they could control you, make sure they could enlist you in the army, make sure that they could cover recover taxes. That's yeah. how identification started. Yeah. Is that really how identification is? Like what is fundamentally yours that nobody can take away? And yeah. how and how do you then use that as something you don't have to share with anybody? Like you, cryptography has evolved so much that I still think when I look at all the countries that the identification foundation of the identification has not been done properly. I don't, I can't point to one country and say they've got it right yet. I see as an opportunity, for example, Brazil, Brazil is a highly biometric uh, country, but there's no interoperability between how they've captured biometrics and there's no standard. So you have the yeah. governments and the major banks using it for fraud, but then you don't have the entire rest of the ecosystem. And now yeah. you implement things like fast, like PIX, which is their faster payments initiative or open banking. That's great, but you're starting to already see fraud because the system was built and the laws were built based on authentication. So there's no country around the world that is getting the infrastructure in place, you know, the right infrastructure in place first before developing these. No, because it's a really cumbersome thing. And I think you um, you can see the UK, like UK.gov.uk and like UK verify like in verify identities. It's it's been a it's been a mess. It's yeah. been a mess for years and it costs the government a ton of money. But I think a lot of people don't it's really looking at the foundation who wants to look at their cracky foundation. Yeah. It's, it's a big job. Yeah, and once, and once you've built on, once you've started that, it's it's, it's difficult to change it. It's a it's a big it's a big exercise to correct. To, to and I think that that's what stems it. But I but I think the pandemic COVID nineteen has only allowed us to see that these infrastructure cracks exist, and yeah. that there is a systemic problem. And if we don't address it at the core, we will see the consequences of it coming out in times of crisis even more than ever. Yes, but I wanted to ask you about the coronavirus pandemic and the you know the the, the way uh, technology has been used to you know, to help us find a way out of the problems that the, the pandemic has caused. Um, you know, test and trace uh, systems, and some of which have been well, many of which have been voluntary and have had have met with mixed success. And there've been debates about whether the, the, the information handed over to these apps by individuals should be shared with central authorities or should just be whether it should just be run at a kind of at the edge so that people could uh that you know apps can tell you who you've been in contact with without necessarily reporting on you to the government or the health ministry or whatever you know what have we learned from those exercises and is there maybe a uh an, uh, maybe a desire amongst people to have a kind of opt-in system that would help them you know, if, if they were sufficiently um convinced that it was you know their privacy was being safeguarded that they might actually opt into such a system to you know for the greater good i think we're far long away from finding what a greater good is i think the evidence of that has only been accelerated with the pandemic like we're seeing democracy sort of go backwards in a lot of countries yeah so i, I mean i just i sorry to interrupt you i, I just yeah. wanted to i mean something that i mean when when the pandemic first struck uh you know, there were lots of conspiracy theories. There still are in many places about, you know, this being part of a government plot to microchip people to, you know, it's been it's been orchestrated by Bill Gates, who wants to monopolize the vaccine, you know, all these wild conspiracy theories. It, you know, I, I always like to think that, you know, good conspiracy theory has to have an element of truth in it somewhere for people to, to believe in it. So, you know, the, clearly there is a demand for better identity systems, identity systems around the world to 
help us uh, you know monitor what people are doing what where they are where you know where they could be exposed to certain to the virus or you know they could be putting maybe burdens on government government services but um how can we kind of shift the narrative from being one of coercion and, and danger for a lot of people to something that's exactly. actually more positive. I think, I think that's where I'm bothered uh, the most is because if you ask me, do I want to be safe? Is my life in danger? Do I want to be safe or do I want to be identified? I want to be safe. Yeah. If it's that matter of life or death, right? So I think that that's not, first of all, the framework or, or sort of the environment uh, that you want to have these discussions in, even though it's a great catalyst for the discussion and it shows existing cracks in the infrastructure. I believe there's a lot of ways that have not been implemented to ensure that things like data protection and anonymity, like there's there's a path in between. There is a path in between using cryptography for the good of making sure a community is safe, but not having to single out people because we've seen what happens with extreme governments when they have control over that data, whether it's an extreme government or whether it's um, a company in which could be Microsoft, could be Apple, which I frankly don't know what their uh, desires are and it's not fully disclosed and I can have an entire discussion about what I think of their practices or what I don't think of their ethical um, yeah. usage of my, my information and my data. And I think my data is mine and how I choose to share it is how I choose to share almost my energy with the world, if I choose to connect with you and share my time and energy with you, it should be it should be a similar sort of model in which you are allowed to opt in, and you're allowed to have a certain level of privacy and yeah. a certain level of protection. Because today the government is great; tomorrow the government could be completely crazy. Yeah. And how how does that give me the basic right to freedom or the basic right to? We're starting to see this, right? Like it's horrifying what's happening in Belarus, what's happening in Hong Kong, like what's happening in Ethiopia. Like there's just, there's my country, Brazil. It, would I want my country to be the custodian of my, with something that actually is my key to accessing services? Probably not. I don't, I'm not sure if I trust them. Yeah. So has coronavirus pushed us in the direction of a surveillance nightmare? Are we going, you know, have we, have we taken a few steps down that path? Absolutely. I think we have absolutely taken steps down that path. And I think it's 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 a time where you see when people, I think, psychologically proven when people are scared. And I think that there is no lack of fear yeah. in the planet today. People sometimes look for guidance and look for something that looks more authoritarian and it looks like I have the answer. And then I think it's up to us as a society to question who's controlling that who how are the algorithms built like it's not like data or um technology is the enemy but it is if we're not really asking the tough questions about ethics and about uh, what are the procedures and how public some of this information is and and i wouldn't even go i would go as far as saying it's not enough to be public it has to be accessible and what i yeah. mean by accessible is not in a 130 page document with some legal wording that yeah. the average person is just too scared or not knowledgeable enough or frankly doesn't have the time. That's sure. a lame excuse that we've all used um, to say, oh, it has to be this way, which I think is just a bag of BS. Yeah. So what can we do to, you know, to, to, to fight back, to push things in, the, in a better direction for the benefit of all of us? 
I go back to awareness raising. I think that there has to be, we have to build a common language. We have to empower people to understand the importance of this for themselves, for their kids, for their businesses, for their democracies, uh, for their country. And I think we have to collaborate better. We're really bad at looking. And even I would go as far as saying, I cannot count the number of times with other financial institutions or governments that I had a conversation about. Have you talked to the other government? and realize what they went wrong when they did this implementation of this identity scheme. And a lot of them will be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. but not really. Mm. Nobody has taken the time to really understand what is the cultural context. Um, Why is a certain country? And I think we're so fast to criticize. And I think we're seeing this on how public opinion is so polarized about what's right and what's wrong and what is legally uh, acceptable versus what's not. I think think we have a long way to go and I think we have forgotten how to be humans. It almost feels to me like we've gone backwards. And I think that's the reason I told you in the beginning, I love identity is that it's all about human beings and it's all about empowering them or safeguarding them in this case. Um, And I- Do you think it's possible to go, to go, to get past, um, you know, national or historical or, you know, cultural differences between different parts of the world when it comes to establishing global standards. And I, I often hear people say, uh, oh, it's only they have national ID schemes in Asian countries like China or India because people are, they don't care so much about individual liberty. I, or they have no, or they have or no they, right to freedom or something or they like don't, that. Yeah, or they, they're used to being, you know, in a totalitarian state. And, and you know, in my reading of history, things just go around and, you know, there are, there are, there are circles of history, everybody gets, uh, their period of totalitarian control at some point. So I don't think there's necessarily any difference between maybe some cultural differences from one country to the next, but it's not necessarily that some people are more freedom loving than others. I just don't, I don't believe that. So, uh, so is that, is it possible to get to a kind of global standard or are we going to be stuck with these, you know, complex national and regional differences, things like differences between the US and Europe, between the battle between US and China, you know, how are we going to, how are we going to get past this? I want to tell you I'm an optimist because if I wasn't, I wouldn't be in the industry trying to tell people that I think, but I think, I think it's going to be an uphill battle and I don't know if it's going to be in my time. I don't know if I will be alive to see it happen. Um, And I think, unfortunately, if, if we as citizens of our own countries and uh, country representatives don't have a conversation, you're going to have large technology firms occupy a space. And I think you've seen that already. Like I'm sure you've read the book uh, by Scott Gallaham for and I'm, I'm a big fan of his in the sense that are we, question, are we questioning things? Are we questioning where technology went um, and who has control of what? Because uh, governments might be criticized by some of the things at least are in the public eye, yeah. right? Like I think we've evolved enough that some things are ridiculous that are happening and is I'm appalled by it because we've lost human decency, but it, at least they're in the public eye with some of these technology firms are not. They're not yeah. up for you and I to question. So yeah. when people use, when there's 2 billion people with Gmail accounts, um, I think even more than that, you, you wonder, does the digital, how long will the digital identity scheme really matter? Uh, if public, if private sector gets into the day-to-day of how we access what is perhaps rightfully our ours to access. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, as individuals, are there any particular steps we can take that we should take to try and redress the balance? 
I think we need to educate ourselves and I blame our industry. I think we use, as you said in the beginning, we use a lot of jargon. I try to purposely not speak with jargon um, and not get insanely technical just for the sake of my ego. Um, so I think historically the, the, the industry is bad for that because it makes, it alienates a, a, an entire population that is just like, what? Don't care, don't understand. Yeah. Yeah. I, think, I think that's the part of it. And I think um, citizens have to educate themselves. And, and I think for that to happen, we have to have better content and we have to have these conversations in a very accessible way. Um, and I think go back to questioning, go back to really understanding this trade-off that we automatically ponder when we're in a relationship. In a relationship, we're always like, am I getting, am I giving too much and getting too little? In, in a technology relationship or in an identity authentication relationship, we're often victims of thinking that this is what it has to be because we have no other option. And I think right. if we had enough people thinking that way, you might be forcing the market to have another yeah. option. Yeah. So the general awareness of that, of that kind of, of maybe what might have been a, an abusive relationship is perhaps that's getting slowly better. People are becoming more aware of the fact that their data has not been used to their benefit and, and there's something they, they should be doing about and that. I, and I yeah. love that. And I'm, yeah. I'm not a proponent of like all technology is bad, quite the contrary. I'm a technologist. So it's like, yeah. but it's, but it's how are we using it and, and, and what are we providing people? Like I'm, I'm a big fan of, but I think a lot of people don't understand. They, they don't understand that we're building the largest asset class humanity has ever built. We're, we build data faster than we build anything else. And there's yes. close to none, like no really fundamental regulation around data. There's a lot of, we, a lot of us have been, a lot of governments have been looking at data as a war game of yeah. here is mine and it needs to be in my territory as if yeah. that's the boundaries of today yeah. and it's much more complex than that Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. Money is changing fast. It's moving more quickly and cheaply. It's becoming more intelligent and more transparent. At the same time, it's becoming more complex and for many of us, more annoying. If you'd like to support New Money Review, you can do so in two ways. On the right-hand side of our homepage, newmoneyreview.com, you can find a link to our Patreon account, p-a-t-r-e-o-n forward slash newmoneyreview. There you can make a regular payment to support us. Or if you'd like to make a donation in cryptocurrency, you can find our Bitcoin and Ethereum addresses also on the right-hand side of our homepage. Thank you.